Welcome to the Natural Health Podcast, where we bring awareness of sustainable health in the business hustle space. The Natural Health Podcast is perfect for the high-performing business-minded individuals who want to work with their biochemistry to achieve success and optimal health. It's Friday, which means it's time for friends sharing facts about health, business, and overall success. In today's episode, we talk to Spencer Feldman. Spencer Feldman is an Oregon native who grew up in New York and lived there for most of his life before finding contentment in the Pacific Northwest. His background is holistic health and gelatin therapy and passion for detoxification allows Spencer to do what he loves every day which is making products that allow real detox to happen. Being the longest running subsidiary company in the United States, Spenta has shared his passion for health over 20 years with products that represent true craftsmanship and commitment to quality. Spencer is the founder of Remedy Link, where for the last 20 years, he has spent time formulating and manufacturing detoxification products for doctors and their patients. His company specializes in helping support your body's natural response to heavy metal toxins. I'm so excited to have Spencer here. A little bit about Spencer is that he now lives with his partner completely off grid on his hundred acre farm where he spends most of his time in his with his orchids and gardening while also continuing to design amazing products for people like yourselves. Welcome to the Natural Health Podcast, Spencer. Oh, thanks for having me, Mahela. You're most welcome. So tell me, have you been gardening lately? What's been happening on this hundred acre farm? Well, let's see. Um, we're burning a lot of brush now that it's the wet season. So if because we have a lot of wildfires out here and, you know, you want to get the, the all the brush up to about eight feet up the tree so that you don't get the trees lit up from some grass fires. So that's a big part of it. Um, there's also uh, putting in new trees. So we're going to put in some pecans and some chestnuts and maybe some more um, asparagus. How in the spring. Yeah, you know, it's always a design in progress. So it's always a work in progress. I love and it. You get to design it yourself. <laughs> yeah, and you'll probably hear some of our guinea hens. That's our um, natural organic way of going after the chick population out here. Nice. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so how long have you been completely off the grid? Uh, I guess it's been about nine years now. And, you know, it's... Um, it's rewarding uh, to uh, be self-sufficient, to generate your own power and, you know, access your own water and uh, have, create your own plumbing and do it all yourself. Um, it's a lot of work, but I couldn't think of living any other way. Yeah, it's, it's becoming a new thing, especially here in Australia. A lot of individuals are talking about going off grid. And I mean, look, you're, you're a veteran already for nine years. <laughs> You know, if you'd like, we could certainly do a whole talk just on all the, the lessons learned about, you know, the things that are you have to do for yourself. You know, when you live in a city, you flush a toilet, your wastes are taken away. You dial a phone number, you know, fresh food is, is delivered to you. You flip on a switch, there's all the power you could ever want. Heat, cold, you know, everything, phone, internet, it's all provided. And when you have, and trash is taken away. When you have to do it all yourself, you know, um, there's a learning process. 
Yeah. yeah, that would be absolutely amazing to get you on back on here and talk about that. I'm pretty sure a lot of the audience would be interested um, about these lessons that you've learned and some advice that you could offer. But let, before we get into today's topic, uh, which I'm so excited about talking all things detoxifications and metals, so many around us at the moment, we wanted to know a little bit more about Spencer. Who is Spencer? What has happened in Spencer's life to get you to where you are now and to open Remedy Link? Well, you know, I wanted to be an emergency room surgeon. And when I was in college, there was uh, someone I think had measles. And so they closed down the college and they said, if you want to come back to college, uh, you have to take a measles shot. And I didn't know any better. So I lined up. And after the measles shot, and I didn't realize it was related, I was having eating soup for lunch or dinner. And my hands shook so badly that I, the soup would shake out of the spoon before I could eat it. And so I went to a doctor and I said, hey, you know, uh, what's going on with my hands? I'm, you know, 19 years old and I've got the hands of someone with Paul, you know, who's got some kind of nerve damage. And he said, well, here's a drug for you. I'm like, okay, but, but, but why do I have it? Right? Explain to me, you know, the, the, the reason behind how someone as young as myself got this. And he, you know, wouldn't or couldn't or didn't and just offered me a drug and that wasn't working for me. Well, okay. Um, so now I'm obviously not going to be a surgeon. You, you know, can't hold us. If you can't drink soup, you're not going to manage a scalpel. Uh, but I still liked medicine, so I went into alternative medicine. And years later, I finally figured out it was I had probably gotten um, a bad reaction from the vaccine, the, the measles vaccine. Um, maybe I'd gotten um, a shot from the very bottom of the vial where there was a lot of mercury, and it damaged my nerves. I don't know exactly process by which it happened, but the timing was right there. And so, you know, I, I, I knew that something was off and I thought it might be some kind of toxin that I might've been exposed to. And so over the course of, you know, a couple of years, I started studying um, a lot of German medicine because I have a great respect for the way uh, German uh, physicians think. Uh, they're very open-minded. And I ended up realizing that I could probably do more good by um, manufacturing uh, protocols than I would as a person who had a clinic. It was just a better suited to my personality type. I just like sitting down and doing lots and lots of research. And that's what I ended up doing. And so what I found was that there were a lot of really amazing protocols for helping people get better, but they weren't being promoted uh, either because uh, there was no money in them. Maybe they weren't patented. Uh, or the number of people that had that particular problem were considered very small. And they said, maybe it's a psychological disorder, right? We used to, the, the word hysterical comes from hyster, which is either in Latin or Greek means womb. So when women uh, who ha uh, would have, some women have a difficult challenge as their hormones shift during their, their menstrual cycle. And rather than say, okay, let's try to understand what's going on for you hormonally, they would call women hysterical which was just an insult because they were saying it's all in your head, right? But it wasn't, it was just the failure of the medical establishment to understand what's going on. Well, that happens in a lot of things, right? There's a lot of people who fall in the cracks, like for, uh, for instance, Morgellons disease, which is this horrific parasitic, quasi-parasitic uh, infection where weird fibers come out of the skin. Um, I can't tell you how many people who will call me up who have that. And I say, Oh, have you heard of Morgellons? And either they have or they haven't. And then I say, well, let me, let me guess your doctor puts you on psych meds. 
they're like, yeah, how do you know? Like, because they think you have delusional parasitosis, right? It's not delusional parasitosis. They have a, 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 a documentable disease, but the doctor is not trained in that. And rather than have, um, yeah, not old, not every doctor will, but you know, some doctors will, you know, rather than say, uh, I believe you, I, I see your suffering. I can see the, the samples you brought me. I don't know what it is. Uh, sometimes they'll just say they're, they're psychologically disturbed. So there's a lot of people who fall in the cracks who are told that it's all in their head. Uh, and so I would, and these people, um, there's often no protocols for them that um, doctors are either informed about or that drug companies can profit from. So there is a lot of people who uh, fall in the cracks uh, in the medical model. And what I'd like to do is to find those, uh, those protocols and make them available. Yeah, I love that. And you, you've had, you know, experience yourself, like you said, when you were 19, um, it's kind of like, you know, your dream got shattered um, due to something out of your own control. Well, you know what, it turns out I don't do too well if I don't get a good night's sleep. So it's just as well. You know, I mean, I probably wouldn't, I, I probably wasn't the best person to be an emergency room physician at three in the morning. Um, in yeah. retrospect, and it was all the way it was supposed to be. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. So look, uh, it's absolutely amazing that you've decided to do what you do, because as we go through the podcast the knowledge that you have and the products that you've developed are absolutely amazing. They can help so many individuals. But before we get into that, in regards to optimal health and success, what does that look like for you now? Because I guess it would have looked a little bit different a few years ago. <sighs> wow. Um, you know, it's a moving target, right? As you get older and, and hopefully wiser, uh, your perspectives and your priorities change. So, uh, you know, trying to be the best version of yourself, trying to leverage what your own particular skill set is for the greatest amount of good you can do in the years you have. So that's what it is for me. Yeah, 100%. And it's ever ever changing and ever evolving and moving. Um, mm. I love that. So let's, let's talk about today's topic uh, being the correct way to remove toxins from your body. Because, I mean, there's mm. so much information out there. You put it into any search engine. You talk to any naturopath. You talk to a doctor. You talk to a nutritionist. You talk to a health coach. And everyone's got their own different views about uh, mm. how toxins should be removed out of the body. Some, some on the same level, some completely not on the same level. So to set it a little bit more straight, let, let's start off and talk about toxins, right? Because, um, you know, this word toxins has come about. People hopefully are a little bit more aware of toxins in skincare, toxins that they breathe, toxins in medication and so forth. But are you able to just give us an explanation of, you know, what are toxins? What are they? Sure. Uh, so there are classes of toxins. And the a, a toxin, you could say, is something that gets into your body and interferes with your normal operation and you know the we could talk about the classes of toxins and i think that would be a good way to get into it um the first toxin you could talk about would be something water soluble right and a water soluble toxin will do the damage it's going to do and then it comes out in the urine and it's over uh so that's the, you know, not that there aren't some very nasty water soluble toxins that can really hurt people. That's not the kind of thing you have to quote unquote detox from because it's going to leave on its own. What you would have to do is expand it to the damage it's done afterwards. Okay. 
when we start getting into classic toxins, it was when we start getting into things like fat soluble toxins. Now, there are a lot of things in our environment that are toxic, but only mildly so, right? So if you get in a new car, there's toxins coming out of the upholstery. You buy a new carpet, there's toxins coming out of the carpet. When you eat food that's, um, you know, processed food, there's pesticides and artificial flavors, artificial colors, artificial preservatives, artificial fats. And what happens is when these, when these chemicals are introduced into, are created, and they go through a process by which we determine what the lethal dose is and how toxic they are. And if they're not, if they're very, if they're only very, very mildly toxic, a tiny bit, then they can go into our food supply or, or go into general circulation without too many warnings. There's some toxins that are so bad that, you know, you need a special license to buy them and, or you, you need special um, facilities to handle them. But so let's say a, a certain pesticide comes out and they say, well, you know, the, the amount of exposure that the average human is going to get over the course of a year by eating this amount of spinach, that toxin is negligible. Well, we could argue whether it's negligible or not, because a lot of studies are fraudulent now, because you can pay to get any, any result you want from the, from, uh, from the research facilities. It's basically uh, without ethics in many cases. But let's take it at face value. Let's say that uh, a particular thing is determined to be only mildly toxic. Well, that one, sure. But what they don't test is what happens when you have 8 million toxins you're exposed to. And although 8 million of them might only be a tiny bit, 8 million times a tiny bit, not only is a lot, but then they also don't tell you what happens when they cross react with each other, right? You know, there are such things as drug reactions, well, they're toxin reactions. So a person might have five or six toxins in them from any one particular thing. And each one of them was, only, was not enough to knock them out. But when you take a look at the cumulative effects of all the toxins we're exposed to through the air, the water, the food, our environment, and then you add to that the unknown interrelationships, we end up living in, <clears throat> in a very toxically challenged world. So that's why it's important to start thinking about detoxifying. Uh, in the same way, if you have a car, you know, you know to change the oil every year or every 5,000 miles. Now, certainly you could take the oil out and send it to a lab and have an expensive analysis done, but you could also extrapolate from common sense and understanding of mechanics that if the oil has been in that car for a year, the oil will have been heated and denatured and there'll be metal shavings. You don't need a test to tell you that. So there are certainly tests you can do to determine your toxic level to a degree. Um, but there's lots of toxins we don't have tests for. And if you're alive in the 21st century and you've lived, you know, you're, you're going to be exposed to these things. There's no way around it. So the first toxin that we really have to start thinking about is the fat soluble toxins. And these store in the fat or lipids. So that would be the cell membranes. So that's the, every cell has a, a lipid membrane around it. And then inside the cell, all the organelles have little membranes, all 31 trillion cells and all the membranes inside those cells. And then you have the brain and the nerves and fat, fat soluble uh, toxins cause a lot of problems. Another class of toxins would be uh, toxic metals. Uh, these mimic things that our body uses. And so it gets stuck in our body because our body thinks it's good. So lead looks like calcium. So it gets stuck in the bones and cadmium looks like zinc. So it gets stuck in the prostate and mercury looks like selenium. So you could see it in the thyroid. 
and aluminum looks like magnesium you'll find up in the brain. Um, they do leave on their own slowly, but we usually accumulate them faster than we get rid of them naturally. So we're going to have to learn how to speed, how to, how to help the body get rid of them. Another class of toxins we could say, we could call these functional toxins. Um, so these would not be toxins in the classic sense, uh, because these are things that are sort of being generated internally rather than taken externally. Um, but these would be things like gallstones and kidney stones and calcifications in the breast and prostate and brain, uh, biofilms, and then the toxins that are created by infections, you know, aflatoxins from fungi and bacterial to and, uh, toxins from some bacteria. Uh, these are all toxins. So for the water-soluble toxins, it's really easy. Just drink good, clean water. The challenge with that is a lot of people uh, are B and C vitamin deficient. There are water-soluble vitamins you need, right? And so uh, if, the only, if a person is low on their water-soluble vitamins and they drink water, then they're going to lose more water-soluble vitamins. So sometimes they're actually not going to want to drink water because it's going to dilute what little water-soluble vitamins they have. The other thing is a lot of the water people drink has the wrong electric charge on it because it's positively charged in the process of uh, cleaning all the the the, the solid uh, all the solids out of it. And a lot of water that we drink is recycled wastewater, urine from from toilets. And you know they do their best to get these things out, but you know a lot of tap water is showing very high levels of um, drugs, uh, antidepressants, um, birth control hormones, and things like that. So a lot of times people won't drink water because their body doesn't like the quality of water that's being presented to it. And in some way recognizes that more water is only going to dilute the low level of water soluble vitamins you have. So if you're one of those people that doesn't like to drink water, get some good quality water, put a little bit of lemon into it for flavor and take some B vitamins. And you may find yourself drinking water craving it again. Now it get, starts getting a little more complicated with the fat soluble toxins. And I want you to think of soap and grease, right? Imagine you've got two dishes on one is a little bit of dirt and the other is some bacon grease, right? You run them both under water. The dish that had the dirt on it is clean because the dirt was water soluble. It's washed off. You're done. The one with the bacon grease on it, the bacon grease is still there because it's not water soluble. So water won't make it go away. So what do you need? You need a soap. Soap is a chemical that binds with grease. We first figured it out when someone was cooking a, a rack of lamb over an open fire pit in, you know, pre in, a, in Paleolithic days and the fat dripped onto the ash, which was, you know, lye and created a, a primitive soap. Well, now we have better soaps, but the principle is that a soap is something that will combine with a fat and make it water soluble. So you add a little, uh, soap to the water, and now the bacon grease comes off because it's now be considered soluble, right? Uh, the, now, the first uh, time we are, uh, the most well-known fat-soluble detox is actually called a coffee enema. Have you ever heard of one? Have you tried one before? I've heard of one, and I am in the midst of getting one, trying one. I haven't tried one yet. Right. So <laughs> the story goes, uh, it's World War One in a German field hospital. And, you know, when you do surgeries, you want to uh, give someone an enema to rinse the bowels out. Uh, so it's less, compli less complications. And uh, this person, you know, the nurse went to the doctor and said, doctor, we, we've run out of hot water for enemas. 
And the doctor looks around and says, there, use the coffee in the coffee pot. She goes, okay. <laughs> and they do. And the patient not only has less post-op pain, but heals faster. And the Germans being very observant people said, hmm, let's see if that was coincidence. And it turns out that coffee enemas help break down chemicals, some of them associated with pain, and help speed up healing. So hence became a coffee enema. Uh, now the challenge with it is, it's, one, it's not very convenient. It means you have to you know, make a couple of cups of coffee and then get in a bathtub and lay on your side and pour all that coffee up inside your colon and sit there for half an hour, lay on your side for half an hour. And then there's a mess of cleaning up afterwards. Um, so that's one challenge. A lot of people just don't want to do it. So doctors are rarely going to say, oh, take two coffee enemas and call me in the morning because they know that their, their clients, their patients not only won't do it, but will probably not think too highly of them afterwards. Um, so the other thing is some people actually get worse when they do a coffee enema now. So let's, let's talk about how can we make it more convenient and how can we keep them getting worse and why would they be getting worse? Mm. What happens when someone takes coffee rectally is it stimulates something called phase one detoxification, which is where uh, some genes called cytochrome P, uh, that activate the cytochrome P450 enzymes add an oxygen to the fat soluble to the fat soluble toxin. So you've got this fat soluble toxin, it's sitting somewhere, the and there's this enzyme called cytochrome P450, and it attaches an oxygen to it, which makes it more reactive. That's phase one. And then right after that comes phase two, when uh, something is added to that reactive site, that oxygenated site, that would be uh, a methyl group, a sulfur group, uh, glucuronic acid, glutathione, and acetyl group. There's lots of them, but those are the main five. And that'd be called phase two. So that's the SOAP process. In the body, there's a, a three-step or a two-step process for making soaps for fat-soluble toxins. Phase one is the first step. It adds an oxygen. We can stimulate that with coffee enemas. And phase two is the conjugate that then goes on it. Now, the challenge is, why would some people get sicker when they do this or not get the results they're looking for? And that is, when you, act, when you add an oxygen to a fat-soluble toxin, you temporarily render it more active. And you have to, because that's how we're adding those conjugates to it to get them out. But what happens if you don't have the conjugates? Well, now you have this more active toxin bouncing around the body. It it's more active than before when you before anything happened, but not active enough to get out. So it's it's you know it's a bad news. And so when you hear of someone who has uh, multiple chemical sensitivities, which I had for a while, uh, and it's another one of those things where people think you're crazy, right? Because they're right next to you in the elevator, where with a person with who put on too much cologne or they're right next to you in the car with the windows down as you drive behind a, a diesel truck and they're fine and you're not, right? So what happens with people with multiple chemical sensitivities is their phase one's working and their phase two isn't. So they have a toxin they're exposed to like everyone else in the elevator or the car or wherever. And everybody's phase one turns on, but their phase two crashes. So now they can't completely get rid of the toxin. They've actually made it more toxic and now they're really sick. Mm. And this is a result of, of a toxic exposure. When someone runs out of phase two, because you'll run out of phase two before you run out of phase one, right? When you run out of phase two and phase one is still going, you actually become more toxic than everyone around you in response to toxins. The toxins are far worse for you. So uh, one of the things that happens is 
someone will do this kind of detox, right? They'll do a coffee enema or something that stimulates phase one detox. They read that this is a great phase one detox product and they get sicker, right? Because now they're taking all those toxins that were in their body and they're making them more reactive, but they're not getting rid of them. And so they feel worse and they call up the person who suggested it to them and they say, oh, oh, it's a healing crisis. It's a Herxheimer reaction. So yeah, uh, for people that have multiple chemical sensitivities, uh, that's huge. There are some people that just can't even go out into public because it's so bad. So the next thing I would talk about would be toxic metals. Uh, now, some people will, will call them heavy metals. That's a very common phrase. And what a heavy metal is, is a metal that has a density greater than water. But uh, I don't think that that's a useful way to refer to them because some light metals, lighter than the density of water, like aluminum are toxic, and some heavy metals, like zinc are good for you. So I took, I use the term uh, toxic metals personally, just to, for scientific accuracy. Uh, now, what happens is all of our cells have these trans, uh, transporters on the cells. There's lots of different types. And the transporters will bring nutrition in and take toxins out. So uh, think of the, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry. Think of the transporters as like um, the toilets and the refrigerators of the cell. It's where the nutrition goes in and it's where the toxins go out. The challenge is toxic metals, uh, they look like things we need. They also look like nutritional metals. So the transporters will pull them in, but because they have a slightly different electrical charge or a slightly different radius, atomic radius, they'll get stuck inside the transporter and gum them up. It's sort of it would be the equivalent of if someone goes and pours concrete into the toilet and puts chains and locks around the refrigerator. You know, that would not be a house you'd want to live in very long if you can't eat and you can't get your wastes to go away. <clears throat> so this is what toxic metals do, among other things. They also are little free radical factories. So the way to get rid of toxic metals is to find something that has a greater affinity for the metal than your own tissue does. And the, the favorite, my favorite is EDTA which stands for ethylene diamine, which is protein, tetra for acetic acid, vinegar. So it's basically protein and four little vinegars. And they uh, EDTA has a wonderful affinity for all sorts of toxic metals. Now it's usually given as an IV. <clears throat> That's because EDTA has a protein component. And if you eat a protein, you'll digest it and break it down if you have stomach acids and enzymes. So that's why IVs are typically given. If there's something, you know, <clears throat> doctors don't want to give an IV. Nobody wants to give or receive something like that because it's invasive and time consuming. Uh, so, but it's done if the thing that you're trying to get into your body would be destroyed or by, uh, by digestion and couldn't be done orally. So EDTA is one of those things. There are people that would, will sell you EDTA capsules, but EDTA is not well absorbed orally. So I'm not quite sure why they do that. <clears throat> but we uh, make an EDTA suppository. And so the benefit of, of a suppository in this case is there's no digestion there. So it, we bypass the issue of having it destroyed by the stomach acids and the, uh, the enzymes in the small intestine. <clears throat> so in terms of an uh, absorption, uh, injection is the best, of course. Uh, number two is inhalation which is very fast and very effective. I personally uh, inhaled uh, methyl B12. I did some this morning. And suppositories come in about third place. So in terms of absorption, they're very highly absorbed. Uh, they're not as effective as an IV, but since you can do them at home 
and you could do them every day, you can end up actually getting more into your system than you could by taking an IV once a week. Uh, <clears throat> however, there's one caveat to that, and that's if you're dealing with mercury, which a lot of people are. Uh, EDTA, as well as the other classic chelators like DMPS or DMSA, will bind to mercury, but they can let go of the mercury if they bump into something like um, oxidized iron, FE3. And there is oxidized iron in some people because, you know, there's iron in the bloodstream. And if they uh, end up having a little bit of um, damage to their blood cells, they can have iron get into their bloodstream and it can oxidize. So what will happen is if someone has oxidized iron, and I think there's a form of chromium that'll do it too, and it bumps in. So let's say EDTA or one of these other chelators grabbed onto some mercury and it's getting ready to have it leave the body. And then it bumps into, you know, an oxidized iron, it'll prefer the oxidized iron to the mercury. There's very little that EDTA wants more than mercury, but oxidized iron is one of them. And it'll drop off the mercury for the oxidized iron. And now you've got the mercury back in the system. However, it can be worse because it might've been someplace, say in the abdominal fat, causing a little bit of trouble, but not too much. And then the EDTA grabs it, moves it around, <clears throat> gets released and now it goes into the brain and it causes more trouble. And this is uh, the backfires you hear of people that do chelators for EDTA, uh, for mercury. So this is a, another kind of detox trap. Um, I don't really have the time to go into that today, but there are protocols uh, that you can do to safely get rid of mercury. And if that's something that someone's interested, they can reach out to me on the website. Um, <clears throat> so there's another kind of top, um, there's another kind of trap. We could call this, um, let's say someone is using something like um, zeolite or chlorella. Actually, let me, let me back up a little bit. Let's talk about uh, crystallizations. You wouldn't really classically call them a toxin, but they act like a kind of toxin, right? They're not necessarily damaging the tissue, but if you have a giant kidney stone that blocks the, the kidney or a bunch, uh, and it causes kidney damage, or if you have a giant gallstone that blocks the bile duct and, and, burn, and now the bile is going into the pancreas and burning the pancreas up and causing pancreatitis, functionally it's acting in a damaging way. So I, I think it's not unreasonable to call these things toxins from the perspective that we want to get rid of them. So in terms of crystallizations, we tend to turn to stone as we age. We calcify, all animals do. Uh, now for calcification, you can use EDTA. Um, our product, metacardium, the EDTA suppository, uh, is calcium-free. So it, uh, a calcium-free EDTA can bond to EDTA in the body. And calcium is actually a metal. You wouldn't think of it as a metal because it, you know, it doesn't bend, it isn't shiny, but chemically it's a metal. So uh, for the calcifications, you can use a magnesium-based EDTA and that'll work wonders. Now, what about things like uh, gallstones and kidney stones? If you happen to have a, an ultrasound unit and you look inside the average person, you'll be surprised how many people are walking around with little kidney stones or little gallstones or bile sludge. It's not that uncommon. Now, have you ever heard or tried of something called a liver gallbladder flush? No, I haven't, but I have used herbs for some individuals. Okay. So the liver gallbladder flush is where you, um, <clears throat> it's sort of in the, uh, the same um, line of thinking of the coffee enema, right? It's not a very convenient thing to do, but it works. Uh, and basically it's a, uh, you would drink a half a cup of olive oil to stimulate the gallbladder with maybe some lemon juice 
maybe the week before you might be doing a bunch of malic acid to start softening the stones or maybe there's maybe some orthophosphoric acid and you also mix some epsom salt in to dilate the sphincter of odi which is the little ring muscle at the bottom of the gallbladder that opens up and allows the bile to squirt out of the gallbladder into the contents of the small intestine and so if you take the half cup olive oil and you to stimulate the gallbladder and you open up the sphincter of odi you might be able to squirt out a bunch of stones you couldn't ordinarily but there's some challenges with this first it's not an enjoyable experience it's not an enjoyable experience drinking it and it's not an enjoyable experience passing them like that uh, two uh, often people don't spend enough time softening the stones <clears throat> so they you know if it's too big to pass through the the, the sphincter of odi they'll just stay there uh, three a lot of people will say well i don't have a gallbladder well okay but the problem wasn't the gallbladder gallbladder is what the place the problem fell into so um doing that kind of protocol won't do anything for the stones that are still being formed in the liver uh, or the sludge in the liver um it's more of a mechanical phenomenon it's not really working at the biochemical level of fixing what's uh, causing the problem in the first place <clears throat> again if someone has has had a gallbladder removed actually they should more than most be working on cleaning out that system even though there's no bag there to catch the stones the problem is still there right <clears throat> it's not a problem as a gallstone but there's still sludge in the liver likely being produced um, another issue with the liver gallbladder flesh is it won't do anything for kidney stones and then here's the, here's the here's the strange thing that happens yes you will definitely or can get stones out by doing this protocol however some of what comes out are just coagulated bits of olive oil caused by the flush itself it's an artifact you can create little soft little stones just by taking the liver gallbladder flush <clears throat> and what happens is people can think oh i they'll, they'll be told keep doing liver gallbladder flushes until no more stones come out but if every time you do it you create fake little stones then you'll never get the message to stop i know people that'll they'll, they'll just keep doing it day after day after day and they say well i'm, I'm still getting stones out i'm like well I, I, you know and I say, well, how many stones have you got out? And they'll show, you know, they'll show me like with their hands how much has come out. And I'm like, do, do you really think you had that many inside you? You're making them. You're creating them by artifact. And the challenge is the body wants to recycle bile. Bile is um, an expensive product to make from, from the body's perspective. And so although we're squirting it from creating in the liver, holding it in the, uh, the gallbladder, squirting into the food to neutralize stomach acids and to kill parasites and to stimulate peristalsis. Um, as it continues down, it gets reabsorbed and goes back into the liver. And if you do liver gallbladder flushes, you dump so much bile out that you can't absorb it all and you end up drying the bile out. It's sort of like changing the oil of your car without putting more oil back in, right? Yes, you wanna change the oil out of your car if your, if your car is filthy oil, but you have to you have to put fresh oil back in right so this is the third kind of trap and that's where a detox causes the problem it's purported to resolve i'll give you another example of this let's say um someone wanted to get rid of some metals and they used some zeolite or chlorella now those will work for, however there's a caveat zeolite is found in the earth and there's lots of toxic metals in the earth so a lot of zeolite has got toxic metals in it and if someone just mines the zeolite, crushes it up and puts it in a pill for you to take without first acid washing it and getting all the metals out of it, 
then you're actually taking in toxic zeolite. And then it hits your stomach acid. And now the metals come off the zeolite. And then your body's got full of metals and you don't feel very good. And then they you get a urine sample and the doctor says, oh, wow, look at how many metals you're dumping. Stay with it. No, you're not dumping those metals. Those are metals you took in, right? And, and then you get stuck on one of these loops where you never get out of it because you keep taking, you keep feeling worse. You think you should just keep doing it and you're actually making yourself more toxic because the product was toxic. The same thing can happen with chlorella if it's not grown properly. If you get some chlorella from a country that doesn't have good standards and they're growing it in an ocean next to uh, the discharge of a you know industry, then you can have all sorts of toxins in the chlorella. So that's a third type is when the detox you're doing is with something toxic and is causing the problem you think it's fixing. Okay, so let's go back to gallstones and kidney stones. With all those issues, you know, we looked to resolve them. We said, okay, can we do this in a way that is not distasteful um, and doesn't drain the body of bile and doesn't um, and, and works both on gallstones and kidney stones and will do it a little slower by dissolving them rather than trying to pop them out in some kind of violent expulsion. So we made a suppository. Uh, in this case, we're not making it a suppository because it wouldn't survive stomach acid. All the ingredients in there you could eat, but it's by location because uh, right up uh, inside the rectum is a huge blood supply for the liver. So you can get right into the liver as a suppository. So in this case, it's about location. And so that's a product we make, it's called Glidamins, and we do it to help support the body in dealing with uh, what is phase three of the detox. And I'll, I'll explain how that kind of works. Um, so let's say, you're, you, it, let's say you've inherited an old house and you look inside the window and you see that there's half an inch of dust everywhere. All right, <clears throat> so you, you know, put on some work clothes and you get a broom and a dustpan and some garbage bags. Now, before you start sweeping, you really ought to open the doors and the windows. Because if you don't, you know, you're just going to blow dust all over the place. But if you can open the doors and the windows and you can sweep the dust right out the door, that's the best way to do it. So before you start doing a detox, whether it's metals from the metacardium or fat soluble toxins with Xenoplex, you want to open the doors and the windows of the house. And that, in this case, doors and the windows are called are the kidneys and the liver. That's the phase three. That's phase one is you uh, attach the oxygen to the toxin. Phase two is you conjugate the toxin. Phase three is it leaves the body through one of these pathways. And so uh, glitamins is what we do to support the body's phase three detox. Uh, or you could say, you know, if you want to, if you were interested in something like a kidney flush or a liver gallbladder flush, you could consider glitamins to support those, those pathways. And that's the fourth kind of detox, which is a detox trap, which is starting a detox when you haven't opened up the main pathways out of the body, uh, the liver and the gallbladder and the kidneys are the main ones, but also for some people, they have to get the lymph moving. If their lymphatic system is completely clogged, um, they might not feel so good either. Uh, and then uh, there's another kind of uh, another kind of toxin that isn't often talked about would be like um, crystallizations in the body. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the crystal. Uh, sorry, stop there for a second and start over. Sorry, head on out. Okay, another kind of crystal that you can accumulate in the body 
is from diet. And these would be things that you take in that actually form crystals inside the tissue. And the most, there's lots of these, but the one that's most common would be oxalates. Now, uh, in the United States, uh, in the 1920s, we had the Great Depression. And I, I suspect it's probably worldwide, but I don't know our history in that sense internationally. But, uh, you know, some of the doctors were saying, well, look, we're seeing all these malnourished people and all these malnourished children. Is there some kind of food that people don't like to eat, but would be really good for them nutritionally? And they came up with spinach. And so in the United States, they created a PR campaign uh, with a cartoon character called Popeye the Sailor Man. And uh, there would be these cartoons where uh, Popeye would you know, be having a difficult day. Maybe um, a bully would be harassing him and his girlfriend. And then Popeye would take a can of spinach out of his pocket and eat the spinach and suddenly grow muscles and save the day. Um, and, you know, that was very well intended. What they didn't understand, because spinach is a highly nutritious plant, but what they didn't understand is there was a reason historically spinach wasn't eaten very much. And it's because it's, it's loaded with oxalates and the oxalates can form crystals inside the body. They're very sharp. So they can, uh, they can like little needles, so they can irritate the heck out of tissue. They also cause kidney stones. Now, there are cultures that have eaten spinach in a healthy way. And what they do is they combine it with dairy. And then the calcium in the dairy binds with the oxalic acid to form calcium oxalate, which is not absorbed in the gut. And that was the kind of ancient wisdom that they had. But, you know, the, the doctors in the 1920s didn't understand that. And so they would just say, eat spinach. And then, and then we have all these oxalate diseases. It's uh, actually a lot more common now because there's a lot of health foods that are fads that are completely loaded with oxalates, um, chia seeds, soy, almonds, beets, lots of different types of kale, loaded with oxalates, certain spices like cardamom. Um, so that's another kind of detox trap. That would be eating foods you think are superfoods, um, but they're actually not just good. They're good and bad, and the bad outweighs the good. So let me get back to the oxalates. <clears throat> there's an inexpensive way to get rid of them. And that's just Epsom salt baths. The Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate. And what happens is the sulfate displaces the oxalates and the magnesium makes the oxalate water soluble. Magnesium oxalate is 230 some odd times more water soluble than the calcium oxalate that forms in the tissues. So if you can displace the, the calcium with magnesium, that magnesium oxalate becomes a water soluble toxin and you pee it right out. And that would which takes us back to our first type of toxin, which is water-soluble toxins. Um, but, you know, oxalates are not the only kind of crystal that forms in the body. So if you consider that we have some 30 trillion cells in the body, you could liken them to little batteries. Now, like little batteries, of your, uh, like the batteries of a car or a cell phone, the batteries of your body can lose a charge over time. So when your cell phone or your car battery dies and won't, it has to be replaced because you can't, it won't hold a charge, it's because uh, there's crystallizations in the battery. In a lead acid battery, uh, lead sulfate is created uh, from this, the lead plate and the sulfuric acid. So the process by which batteries age and fail, whether they're lithium or lead acid or what have you, is crystallizations. Now, uh, if it's just your car battery or your cell phone battery, it's no big deal. You, you just buy another battery, but you can't do that for your 30 trillion cells. We need to find a way to fix them. Now, in industry, 
when you have very expensive batteries that you can't just replace or don't want to replace due to cost, say like the batteries on a nuclear submarine or uh, the backup batteries, for the power systems for a nuclear power plant or something, um, there are protocols that you can do to recover those batteries. Uh, and um, they use high voltage spikes to cause the, elect uh, the crystals to both dissolve and to shatter. Um, we make a machine that does something similar called the electron charger. If you've ever heard of grounding, it's like that, but many orders of magnitude more powerful. So there are other ways to deal with um, crystallizations in the body. And if you do manage to use electricity for that in the right way, you'll often find that your urine will start turning cloudy the next day with all the, all the debris that's coming out. But if you don't have access to one of our electron chargers and you're patient, you can do much the same thing with Epsom salt baths. And then this brings us to our last class of toxins, and that would be um, uh, biologic um, microorganisms, viruses, fungus, bacteria, parasites, yeast, they create toxins. They not only generate damage, um, so there are two classes of, of infections you could have. You have the acute ones that, you know, will eat tissue, like the ones that get in and, and eat skin, you know, staphylococcus and streptococcus, and they'll, they'll, they'll actually eat the body where are their food source and left unchecked, you know, they can just, they're, they're flesh eating bacteria. They can just eat us up, but that's not the most common things that we're exposed to. Um, most of the infections we get are composters. Um, and what the problem with those is not so much what they do to our body more that the wastes that they continually create. So someone who has a chronic yeast infection or a fungal infection will be loaded with aflatoxins and they won't be able to think straight. It's not the yeast per se, but the toxins being generated by them. So there's a class of toxins that are the waste product of microorganisms. And those are the ones that I will, you know, I'm gonna, I want to talk about now. So if you look at a compost pile, um, so most infections are, are, are composting infections, right? They're not these acute, uh, you know, eat you as food more. They just think you're compost and they're living on you because you look like compost to them. So if you look at a compost pile, you're going to see this layer of slime uh, and it's called a biofilm. And it's this biofilm protects the, uh, the microorganisms, the viruses, fungi, bacteria, and parasites, which can all live symbiotically in the biofilm. It protects them from dehydration. It protects them from predation. It protects them from all sorts of things. Uh, and they can live together in symbiosis. Now, like I said, we're constantly exposed to these composters, but if we're healthy and we don't smell or taste or look like a compost pile to them, they'll pass right through us. They won't set up a biofilm colony in us. But if we have a lot of devitalized tissue in our bodies, then they're going to start living there because they're going to get the signal that we are compost, right? Um, one of the ways that they get that signal is <clears throat> devitalized tissue has a lower electrical charge uh, and dead tissue has no, no electrical charge, right? It's the electrical charge that, that lets those transporters we talked about earlier function. So I think one of the reasons people are prone to compost biofilm type diseases, chronic diseases, is they have a low electrical charge. Uh, and the, as a result, the bio, the uh, infections that were these composting agents were constantly exposed to get the signal that they're not vital and then that they think they're a compost pile, they're not enough electricity to, to feel like they're normal, and they set up shop, right? Um, an interesting aside, 
when we first started using the electron charger, we, um, we noticed a lot of people were having worms come out of them into the toilet. I'm like, well, why is that happening? So I type in onto YouTube, worms and electricity, and I find these videos that show country folk will take a car battery and they'll take it to the riverside and put two probes on it, so the positive and negative, and then put the probes on the earth and electrify the earth and out come the worms. And then they grab them and put them on a hook and go fishing. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, this happens in nature. Worms compost. Worms are very big composters, but the composting community does not like electricity, right? It, it says, this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is, you know, it wants, it wants soil and, and decaying matter. So I think we electrified somebody uh, properly and, and, you know, because we were trying to do it for crystals, but what ended up happening is uh, people started passing worms out of them because the worms said, I, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> this is not a compost pile. Let me out of here. Anyway, so we're, we're, if we have devitalized low electron tissue in our body, then they're going to colonize us and set up shop and they tend to go and build up on the on, on surfaces. So inside our arteries and the intestines and the sinuses and the teeth, the surfaces of the internal organs. And once a slime, slime layer is complete, um, the white blood cells of the immune system can't do much because they can't penetrate more than a, a cell or two thickness deep in before they just get stuck like on a, on a glue trap. Uh, so these chronic infection, uh, chronic biofilm infections can persist for years, dumping their toxic wastes in because they have this whole system where they transport water and nutrition in and toxins out. So they're constantly dumping toxins into the tissue, but our immune system can't get in there to deal with them. Now, you could try to take some drugs to kill the viruses or fungi or bacteria or parasites, and it's usually a combination. Um, but it, first off, it's going to take very high doses, then a lot higher a dose than it would take in a test tube. And that's because in the body, they're protected by the, uh, the biofilm layer. And so you might have to do 10 or 100 times more of these toxic drugs to kill these things. But that won't always work because 1% of these infections are uh, metabolically dormant. They're like sleeper cells. And that's their strategy. So if something comes along to wipe out the colony, one moon cycle, one lunar cycle or two lunar cycles later, because these tend to go on lunar cycles, they'll wake up and then repopulate the whole thing. So someone, you know, thinks they've knocked out, um, you know, a certain particular chronic disease and got their Herxara reaction and they've gotten clear, two months later it's back because that 1% will repopulate it in a day. And it can be even worse because now they've got a drug resistant version. So my, the way that I conceive of going after the biofilms is a two-pronged approach. One is I want to dissolve the structure of the biofilm so that my white blood cells can go in there and, and attack them. And the other is I want to interfere with their communication lines to confuse them, right? So plants have had to deal with biofilms for millions of years. They are the geniuses of the, uh, the, of the chemistry world, and they make all sorts of interesting chemicals. And what they have come to is the same conclusion, which is, dissolve the biofilm and confuse it. And to do this, they uh, create inside their, their plant bodies, essential oils and bitters. Now bitters interfere with the communication of the biofilm by interfering with something called quorum sensing, which basically is how the biofilm knows when to grow and when to stop growing. It doesn't want, it wants to match its growth to the available resources, the ability for wastes to be washed away and the size available to colonize, right? It doesn't want to just keep growing and then there's not enough food and not enough room and their waste build up. So it has something called quorum sensing by which it says, okay, I, I can grow now. Oh no, I'm too big, back off a little bit. Okay, that's just right. And bitters interferes with that process. Bitters 
tells the, the biofilm, you've grown way too big, way too big. Stop growing, shrink down a little bit. And the biofilm is like, oh, okay. Um, the other thing plant gives us are the essential oils and essential oils uh, do two things. One is they directly dissolve the biofilm and two, they're like the white blood cells, right? They are, they will actually, it will actually go not only and dissolve the biofilm, but kill the infections inside there. Now, fortunately for us, we can, uh, I eat, we can eat bitter and aromatic plants and ingest these essential oils and bitters and get the same benefit. The downside is bitters and essential oils are no longer in our diet. So what happened is over the last thousand years, um, we realized that if you take the, the sweetest carrot and made it to the sweetest carrot, you get an even sweeter carrot and you take the, and so they do that with all of these, all of these plants and what used to be bitter and tart plants, carrots, grapes, apples used to be pretty bitter. They're now very sweet. What we have done is to cater in catering to our sense of taste, we have uh, bred out all of the medicinal aspects of the plants because it's the bitters that are the medicinal parts. Now, the other thing is essential oils evaporate pretty quickly. Now, if you happen to have a, uh, a garden outside your window and you're going to make dinner and you want to go and get some rosemary and some oregano and you chop it up and you put it in your food, you're going to eat the essential oils. But if you go to the store and get some spices that have been irradiated and fumigated and then sat um, out a, or sat in a bottle and exposed to air, there's no essential oils left in them. There's a huge world of difference between a freshly picked spice and something in a bottle. So because of that, uh, because of our breeding, our, our plant breeding pro programs, and because of the way food is harvested and delivered, we don't get bitters and essential oils anymore. So what I did is I said, all right, well, I want to get them. How do I do that? Because even if I go and I eat spices, I'm still not getting bitters so much because it's just, you know, they're cropped. The seeds you get to grow aren't bitter so much anymore. So what I said is, um, let me see what I can figure out. And I took two of the most powerful bitters known to man, that's gentian and berberine. And then I went through about 300 essential oils, looking for ones that were edible, would not cause sensitization, meaning you wouldn't become allergic to it over time, you know, basically had no side effects. You could eat that essential oil all the time. And I found like three or four essential oils that matched, you know, the, pro, um, the parameters I set for it. And I put them in a product called Zoibin, which is bitters and essential oils. And that is the equivalent as if you were eating a thousand years ago. And, you know, um, it's strange, you know, I get calls from people with situations and conditions I would not have thought that that would be, have been helpful for. And they'll all be, oh, yeah, it, it, it dealt with this or it dealt with that. Um, so there's a lot of things that I would not have thought were biofilm related that are. Uh, so if you want that, you know, certainly you can go and, and um, the, the cheap way to do it is, you know, go pick some uh, bitter dandelions and and um, go have some fresh, you know, uh, spices, but if not, you know, zoibin's available to you. Um, but it's important to remember that it's not enough just to kill the biofilm, break down the biofilm and kill the bugs. You have to get rid of that devitalized tissue because if you don't, it's just gonna grow back again with your next bite of bread or your next piece of fruit, right? These composting agents are in our, they're everywhere and they're supposed to be, right? That's how nature works. <clears throat> now the best, one, the best thing for this is a water fast, in my opinion. And that's not, not intermittent fasting. Um, it takes, in order to get to some of that deep toxic tissue in the body, it's at least seven days for that process to start for most people. Uh, so 
I mean, if you want to do a short fast, like intermittent fasting for insulin resensitization uh, and uh, for stimulating certain genetic pathways and, and epigenetics, that's great. If you want to do it for a detox, it's going to have to take a little longer. So my suggestion, if you're going to do a, a fast for a detox, and I think that's a great idea, first do a basic detox, something like our metacardium, Xenoplex, or, and Glidamins, something to deal with uh, metals and chemicals and opening up the detox pathways. Get rid of the low-hanging fruit first, right? That way, when you when you go and do the deep work of a fast, all the easy stuff is gone and the body can then focus on the really difficult to get stuff that's deep, deep into the tissues. And the way a fast, in my experience, happens is, you know, the first three days, kind of grouchy and then and hungry, and then, you know, days three, four, five, and six, you'll be you know, dreaming about all the food you're going to eat. And then somewhere around day seven, the stink starts, right? Your tongue gets coated, your breath smells terrible, your skin smells terrible. You can smell old drugs, pharmaceutical or recreational that you've taken come out of you or old chemicals you've been exposed to, maybe cigarette smoke. And then somewhere around day 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, the stink goes away. Your breath becomes fresh again. Your skin smells good. That is one detox cycle and you're done. And my suggestion is if you're going to come off a fast, do it with uh, meat broth. I've tried coming off fasts with fruit, with dairy, with, with grains, and my stomach was never very happy with that. But what I do is I'll take like um, a brisket and I'll slow cook it for a day with some onions and carrots. And then when I come off the fast, I'll just bring, drink the broth. And then by, you know, with another hour or two as my stomach's starting to gurgle and wake up, I'll start working my way into the slow cooked vegetables and meat. And I find that's the easiest way to break it. So if, what do you do if you don't have the time or inclination to do a 14 day water fast, right? I mean, because you have to think, keep in mind, you know, you might be okay for all 14 days or you really might not be thinking your clearest. You might want to sleep a lot. You probably shouldn't be driving a car. So um, if you want to try to break down divitalized tissue in the body and you can't do a fast or you can't do a longer one, uh, you can do proteolytic enzymes to break down disease tissue. And my favorite one is serapeptase. That's the enzymes that silkworms use to break down the chrysalis, uh, the cocoon around them, and then come out as butterflies. And that particular enzyme uh, does a great job at also breaking down uh, disease tissue in the body. Again, you can't take it orally, right? Because it's a, it's a protein, it's an enzyme. So we make it as a suppository. Um, so those would be the, the kind of, that was what my detox protocols were for the last X number of years. Unfortunately, there's a new class of toxins that are, are out there. Mm. And, you know, if you want to talk about it, we can start talking about genetic toxins now. Yeah, let, let's go for it. I mean, you've just blown my mind and I'm pretty sure the audience is like, whoa, I'm definitely going to have to listen to this again but all the stuff that you've mentioned just makes sense and um it's you've just gone into so much detail and i really appreciate it but yeah let's let's move let's move on to the next ones so it's estimated that a single strand of dna in our cells is damaged a hundred thousand times a day from things like endogenous oxidants like superoxide like superoxides uh, environmental chemicals even sunburns so of course we have a genetic repair system which is why we can take that kind of damage and still be healthy. Uh, but now our genes are exposed to a kind of toxin that is different both in quantity and quality to anything that's ever happened before. And I'm, I'm talking about um, RNA injections. Um, 
So in June of 2021, all right, phrase it this way. We live in a time where we can, where genes can be altered. You can have your genetic code rewritten. And if you as an individual choose to do that for yourself, okay, uh, that's your choice, free will to your body, do with it what you will, right? Um, however, some people believe they have the right to alter another person's DNA without their consent or without their permission. Uh, there are researcher, research facilities around the world work, and patents that have been issued about putting genetic modifying technologies into the food we eat. So for instance, you eat a, 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 bit, a little bit of lettuce and there's something in there that alters your, your genetic code. We're not talking about genetically modified organisms where the lettuce is different. We're talking about you being the genetically modified organism you getting your code changed by having a, by eating a salad. Uh, I, there's another one, I think it was Gates was trying to, or has done research by having mosquitoes bite people. And then the people that were bitten were then had their genetic code rewritten. And then in June of 2021, the German government authorized the manufacture and use of self-spreading genetic protocols, meaning one person might choose to have their genetic code rewritten with an RNA technology, but then they go and they're in close proximity or intimate with or breathe on another person, and then they infect that other person with the gene-altering technology without their knowledge or consent and with no way for them to stop it. So in today's day and age, if we want to maintain our original genetic integrity, and pass those unaltered genes onto our children, we're gonna have to up our scientific game a little bit, right? So like I said, you know, there are 100,000 hits to, to a DNA strand every day, and most of them get repaired, not a big deal. So we have a genetic repair system. We have a ways of dealing with genetic damage. So my thought was, you know, I could choose not to let someone put a needle in me to alter my genetics, but how would I stop it if it gets into the food supply or if it gets into mosquitoes or if it gets um, goes person to person? So I decided that I wanted to come up with something that would help deal with that. And so I looked at the ways in which the body deals with genetic toxins. And I found a series of firewalls and I will share those with you and your audience now and show you ways in which you can boost your defenses to maintain your genetic integrity. Uh, the first genetic firewall would be um, removing damaged DNA, right? When the human genome did its project, uh, finished its first uh, reading of the human DNA in 2003, scientists were very surprised to find that 98% of the DNA was what they thought was junk. Now we know this is not accurate. Um, they, they, they thought that anything that didn't code for, pro for protein was junk DNA. It's not true. There are other things that DNA does and other regulatory things, but we do have quite a bit of junk in our DNA, maybe 80%, right? And it's from viruses that use reverse transcriptase to get into our DNA and we can, couldn't get them out. Um, so we're about 80% junk DNA, meaning you could theoretically pull 80% of our DNA out and we'd be only the better for it. Um, but there's another plant called Dionea muscipula, 
which is commonly known as Venus flytrap, and it's only 3% junk DNA. Somehow, the Venus flytrap has figured out how to remove junk DNA from itself. Uh, and indeed, people have been taking Venus flytrap extract for years to help them with virally associated conditions. So the first firewall would be to try to start clearing, to clear out the junk in our DNA. If the body can recognize that it's junk, maybe we can pull it out. And taking Venus flytrap extract is one way to do that. The second firewall would be repairing damage to genes. So if your genes get rewritten and the body can learn to see that as damaged genes, it could snip it out and take it out. Um, the real superstars in the world for a genetic repair are the ants. Uh, they do this by creating a fat-soluble dialdehyde called uh, iridoidal. And ant extracts have been used in Chinese medicine for millennia. More recently, uh, the famous German doctor Hans Nieper uh, identified the iridoidal as the extract that gave ants their remarkable healing capacity. Now, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any facilities that mass produce iridoidal. I wish they, I, I, they would, because I'd buy it by the kilo. But the next best thing is to get mountain ant extract, and then you could take the uh, iridoidal in that way. And that is a way that the second firewall that you might use to upregulate your ability to uh, cut out, I'm sorry, to repair bad DNA. Um, a third genetic firewall would be something called gene silencing. Now, imagine your DNA is like a giant library and every book in it contains the instructions on how to make something, typically proteins. Now, if the book just sits on a shelf, um, let's say the book's a bad book, right? It's a book that tells you how to make something terrible. As long as it just sits on the shelf, not a problem. Um, so, but if someone requests the book and gives it to the librarian and then ask the librarian to take that book out and now they're reading it and, and following through the instructions of the book, now we've got a problem, right? If it's a bad gene, right? Making something that doesn't belong in the body. So imagine some villain sneaks some bad books, books on how to make bombs, books on how to create disease into the library, right? Let's say some multi-billionaire decides to do this, right? Um, there are basically putting instructions into your library that they and that you your librarian is going to then take out and read on how to make terrible things. Let's say um, a villain makes a, a book on how to make bombs, right? Now, you don't want these books being read. So you tell the librarian, hey, you see those books right over there that just got put in? Don't make them. Just leave them on the shelves. This is a process called gene silencing. We have the ability to not activate certain genes. Uh, it actually happens in two different places. One is at the transcriptional level where DNA unwinds and the RNA is created. And the other is at the translational level where RNA goes into the ribosomes in the cytoplasm or into plasmic reticulum to make proteins. So we actually have not only can the librarian say, no, we're not going to take that book out. But then there's also another, another worker who says, who can say, that, who can also say, oh, did, did somehow, do you want to take this book out? The librarian must have missed it. No, we're not reading this book. Go stick it back on the shelf, right? So um, gene silencing is a great way to deal with bad genetic influences. It just says if you can't repair it and you can't cut it out, then just, um, just silence it. Um, the major player in, gene, in, silencing, in gene silencing is methylation. But about 50% of us are under-methylators and about 10% are over-methylators. And this has to do with genetic flaws in the MTHFR uh, SNPs, the singular nucleotide polymorphisms. Uh, 
in our genes. So because some of us are overmethylators, you don't just want to raise methylation across the board. Uh, what you need to, what you want to do is you want to balance methylation, right? If it's low, bring it up. If it's high, bring it down. So you have optimal methylation, you have optimal gene silencing. What you're looking for is a methylation adaptogen. And fortunately there is one, it's called curcumin. Um, however, you don't uh, want to waste your methyl groups detoxifying things like heavy metals or chemicals. So, and glyphosates and parabens will do that. So uh, one of the things you might want to do is do one of the detoxes, you know, we were talking about, uh, if you're interested in the metacardium, the xenoplex and the glitamins for, to support the body in dealing with metals and chemicals so that the glyphosates, the parabens are out so that when your methyl donors are properly functioning, they can be used for gene silencing rather than wasting them on something like that you can do, you know, uh, you know, like, um, the artificial colors and flavors you had with, you know, the, the donut that day that you could have taken out in another way. So gene silencing is, um, another major firewall. Uh, and, uh, a fourth firewall would be uh, self-destruct signals. So, um, if a bad gene gets inserted into the DNA and it starts pumping out damaging proteins, so the gene silencing, if that didn't work, if the, um, preparing didn't work, um, if snipping it out didn't work, if there's nothing you could do to, uh, to repair it or to get rid of it, um, then the next step is for the cell to commit suicide, to self-destruct. And that does it with something called a, C, um, a P53 gene. And it's called apoptosis. Uh, so the cell literally self-digests. And uh, the problem is the, the, the herpes family of viruses, that's uh, chick, herpes, chickenpox, Epstein-Barr, mono, cytomegalovirus, cold sores, um, they can damage the P53 gene that's responsible for apoptosis. Uh, so we can end up losing the ability for that. So my favorite uh, thing for that is something called a latch tannin, which is a natural plant uh, compound found in, in raspberries and some other things that stimulates the apoptotic cycle. So, um, so you want to support that so that if a cell, no matter what, if a cell is still making bad proteins, uh, you can have the cell just take one for the team and self-destruct. Um, another thing you want to do is you want to balance something called your T regulatory cells, and you can use uh, astragalus with that. Um, what happens is one of the things you'll find in certain injections are things are called um, adjuvants that are designed to hyperstimulate your immune system uh, with the idea behind being that your immune system is educated towards uh, going after whatever was just injected into you to make you resistant to it. Um, but the problem is it could create autoimmune issues as well. So uh, if, our, if, damage, gene, if genes get damaged and start making rogue proteins that are similar to proteins we find in our own bodies, then you can end up with a systemic autoimmune disorder. Uh, now the body can clear out rogue proteins, but it can only take out so many of them. So it's really important that our immune system stay calm during this time. Um, it is the T regulatory cells that suppress the inflammatory cytokines, um, that are responsible for doing this and curcumin, the ingredient we talked about uh, for gene silencing also along with the astragalus, they can both support T regulatory cells. So that's a way to keep the immune system from overreacting to those proteins that still manage to express themselves up no matter what we've done. Um, so you have all the ingredients. We make a product called Regenamin that has all those for you if you don't want to have to go and buy them separately and, and mix them up. But those are ways in which you can um, support the body in dealing with uh, rogue genetic uh, manipulation. And um, 
So that's also something that's specifically useful for women during the luteal phase of their cycle, which is, you know, when PMS would happen if a woman uh, is susceptible to that, because that's when her T regulatory cells are the lowest. So, uh, you know, dealing with genetic toxins, that's something that um, it's important to understand how to do, not just for ourselves or our kids. Uh, if you like, you know, we can, I can also share with you um, uh, two other protocols for people who um, may choose to take them um, by injection. And if they find that there, in, there are people who may, in our country, who are uh, being told if they don't get injected, um, they'll may not have access to seeing their children, they'll lose their uh, retirement benefits. Um, uh, the military is being told that they may be given a dishonorable discharge, which means they can't vote, they can't own a gun, they, they, you know, they lose everything. So there's a lot of people that are being forced in our country, far more in yours, to get vaccinated. Um, so if you like, I will tell you the protocols that I, um, I'm working with to deal with people that against their better, against their wishes are finding themselves in a position where they're being forced one way or another to get vaccinated and what you can do about that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love what you shared about the, um, the genetic, the genetic protocols. That's absolutely amazing. And it just makes sense. And yeah, if you have time, I would absolutely love to hear uh, what else you've got to share. I'm, I'm all ears and I'm pretty sure the audience is also. All right. Hang on a second. I got to go get something to show you and then uh, we'll start that. No worries. Okay. Okay. So in the old Western movies, all right, let me phrase this. I saw a video where someone in Russia had done what's called plum blossom technique, which is where you do a little scarification on the arm and then you put a vacuum cup over it and you suck blood out. And they said, oh, well, if you do this, it'll help pull the toxins out from the vaccine. And that's not accurate. Uh, the, the vaccine isn't in the blood at that point. It's in the soft tissue, the fatty tissue, and then the lymphatics, and then the blood. And by the time it's in the blood, it's not going to be in the shoulder. It's going to be systemic. So doing that is only going to cause trauma to the shoulder and make it actually more inflammatory and, and more systemic. So that's the wrong way to do it. Um, you know, in old Western movies, they used to show the, the, the hero taking a Bowie knife and making a cross through the puncture marks of the snake bite to suck the, and suck the venom out. No, that's, that's just bad Hollywood. Um, what you do with a snake bite is um, you wrap it, you wrap with a, like an ace bandage and then immobilize it because it's lymphatic movement, it's a muscle movement that's causing lymphatics to move, which is gonna spread it through the body quicker. And that buys you the time to get to the hospital where hopefully you can get the anti-venom, okay? So, I like to think of vaccinations, injections as like a snake bite. And what do you do for that? So the first step is uh, you wrap the arm. You try to get the vaccine as low on the deltoid as possible because you're gonna wanna wrap it uh, with um, an ace bandage or whatever you have handy. Um, you're not making a tourniquet here. You're not trying to stop blood flow. You're trying to stop lymphatic flow. So just sort of like um, a compression bandage. And then um, my suggestion is uh, get the strongest neodymium magnet you can find we make these special curved ones that fit directly over the shoulder. But if you can't get ours, uh, hang on, I gotta find a place to put this so it won't damage electronics. Okay. If you can't, if you can't get ours, uh, any powerful neodymium magnet will work. Um, and the reason is because there are paramagnetic elements in the vaccines. There is graphene oxide and super paramagnetic iron nanoparticles. And so let me explain what paramagnetism is. 
Normal magnetism is north and south attracting and north and north repelling of two magnets. Okay. Diamagnetism, which most things are diamagnetic, is they are repelled from a magnetic field, right? And paramagnetic is something is attracted to a magnetic field. So graphene oxide and spions, which are um, we believe have been, or have been shown to be in vaccines, are paramagnetic. So if you can put a powerful magnet over the shoulder, maybe you can keep it in the shoulder longer because otherwise it's going to be in the liver in five minutes. Um, we could talk about why graphene oxide and spions are in. Ostensibly, the spions are there for magnetofection, which is the process by which um, things enter the cell more quickly and make the vaccine more effective. And the um, graphene oxide would be there ostensibly to protect the fragile RNA. However, um, graphene oxide is nearly a room temperature superconductor, which makes, which makes it a fantastic antenna. And spion, um, and when, ox, uh, when reduced, goes into the brain in the hippocampus and the thalamus. And spions would be attracted to the most magnetic part of the body, which would be the thym uh, pineal. So if you wanted, let me. Okay, so there are studies that are uh, that they're doing now with animals where they inject these things into animals and then they are able to apply a electromagnetic field to the animal and control or alter the animal's behavior because these uh, elements go into the nervous system, go into the brain, and then they go to very particular places. And then if you could stimulate, say, the pain center or the pleasure center or the anxiety and fear center or a center that suppresses rash uh, executive thought, you could manipulate people electromagnetically by placing things that are self-assembling antenna with the use of nano, um, uh, PEG hydrogels, courtesy of DARPA. Uh, and I know a lot of people will say, well, that's just crazy sci-fi, but we live in a crazy world right now. So, um, you know, take it for what it is. Um, the patents exist. The studies have been done on controlling animal behavior by having these elements go to their brains and affecting them with radio waves. So part of the magnet concept is if we're going to have self-assembling antenna that will assemble in the brain from a magnetic field, let's force assemble it in the shoulder. Let's sacrifice the shoulder and save the brain. And if I can have a strong magnet force that hydrogel to assemble here, great, because that's, that's where I want it. Um, there are some people um, very well-meaning uh, uh, that will tell you to take things like vitamin C and, and N-acetylcysteine to reduce graphene oxide. Terrible idea. That The people who are doing that have, mis have confused the word reducing. Reducing has two meanings. One is make it go away, and the other is add an electron. And uh, what they're doing is they're the reducing, when you take those things, you're not making these things go away, you're adding electrons. So they are reducing graphene oxide, but they're not making it go away, they're creating reduced graphene oxide and reduced graphene oxide is the one that has the affinity, at least in animal models for the uh, hippocampus and the thalamus. And if you start damaging the hippocampus and the thalamus, you're damaging sense of um, uh, memory, muscle, muscle control, uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, and then also a sense of spatial awareness and where you are. So I'm not... <laughs> If you really wanted to create a zombie, if you wanted to create somebody that spasmodically moved around, was crazy, and didn't know where they were, those are the two parts of the brain you'd affect. So, you know, all right. So anyway, um, you can, I believe you can get rid of graphene oxide, um, but not by quote unquote reducing it, by doing the opposite, by oxidizing it. 
So this is a vial of graphene oxide, right? And this is a vial of graphene oxide that has been exposed to an oxidant, right? Okay, so the oxidant I chose was based on scientific literature. There was a study that said that there was um, some enzymes. Okay, hang on a second. I'll see if I can give you the exact names of them. Give Mind blown. Anyone, point. anyone yeah. who's listening to the audio version uh, just showed us that the graphene oxide was darker and the one that was oxidized was light, a light color, um, if you're not watching it on video. Okay. Right. So there's a study and you can look it up called enzymatic degradation of graphene quantum dots by human peroxidases. And it's, it says that the enzymes myeloperoxidase and eosinophil peroxidase, which are produced respectively by neutrophils and eosinophils, which are white blood cells, degrade graphene oxide. And they do it by creating hypochlorous acid, HClO. So <clears throat> how do we do that? Do we want to we could try to upgrade relate the enzymes, but let's just bypass that and go right to the hypochlorous acid, which is something Jim Humble, if you've ever heard of him, was suggesting uh, as a great protocol for certain things. Uh, you can look up MMS2, and Jim Humble was suggesting something on the order of about a milligram per kilogram body weight, calcium hypochlorite, calcium hypochlorite, in a capsule with water every hour, about eight hours a day. And what happens is the calcium hypochlorite, make sure that's the one, when it hits the stomach acid and water, it goes into it goes and breaks up and turns into hypochlorous acid and hypochlorite in equilibrium. And that is what I put in those vials. I put a little bit of calcium hypochlorite and in one of them, and you can see it broke it down. It's not for long-term use. It'll cause protein cross-linking. But um, now someone is going to come and say, well, I can't find human pharmaceutical grade calcium hypochlorite. I only see, you know, pool grade, pool shock. I only see it as a bleach agent and that's true. Yeah, it's too bad. I wish we could find food grade calcium hypochlorite. But what I will say is if you can find calcium hypochlorite that is used for water purification, for drinking, pure, drinking water purification, that's gonna have to meet certain standards. And that's, so if you can put it in something to purify drinking water, it's probably clean enough to put in your body. But you know, that's, that you're, you, you know, that's gotta be a decision you have to make. And in any case, that is something that I've just shown you will break down um, graphene oxide. All right, so um, you wrap the arm with, a, um, uh, with an ace bandage, you put on a magnet, you know, you wrap it again, you put in a sling so you don't move the arm and you breathe as slowly as possible because the diaphragmatic breath will move the lymph. And then you go to your antivenin right? In this case, the antivenin is calcium hypochlorite. That's what I'm thinking. You know, if somebody comes up with something different, great, you know, uh, please let me know. And then there are homeopathics. Um, you can get homeopathic um, spike protein, homeopathic graphene oxide. Finally, um, one last thing, and this is the, what I've just done the research on most recently is what do we do for someone now who's already got their genes altered? and whose body is generating lots of spike proteins. Now in the human body, um, genes have, um, parts of your DNA have a section that says start here and stop here, like little parentheses, right? Um, but what happens if somebody puts something into our genetic code and didn't put the start and stop, they just put the start, right? It's sort of like, you, you, don't, let a, uh, you don't let monkeys rewrite Shakespeare. They're just not, you know, you don't let a three-year-old rewrite Shakespeare. 
right? Our genetic code is Shakespeare, right? And we are messing with it in ways that we don't understand and can have very serious long-term sequelae consequences. So, you know, I'm thinking, all right, let's say somebody has got the bad genetic information and their body is generating spike proteins. Okay. Well, a lot of it goes into the nucleus and boy, that's going to be tricky. Um, I'm not quite sure how we go in there. Um, some of it's going to get expressed uh, onto the outside of the cell that it's making it. Uh, and then some of it is going to butt off into the bloodstream. Now, if you look at the spike protein, you know, it has the, the active parts on this are the arginine and lysine residues. So arginine and lysine are amino acids and they're, they're stuck in the spike protein and they got their little, you know, tail sticking out and that's where the action happens. So I thought if we can stick something on the lysine, which is the main one, um, but also arginine, but if we could stick something on the lysine, kind of like put a cap on it, put some glue on it, you know, cover it up, then maybe it won't be functioning. Maybe the immune system can't see it. And I came, I found four things in the literature that will bind to lysine residues that are non-toxic. Uh, we have um, alpha lipoic acid, but you have to be careful because if you're uh, toxic on mercury and you take alpha lipoic acid, it can move the mercury around. Uh, biotin, the sugar, um, arabinose, and beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone. Uh, the trick with beta-hydroxybutyrate is there's a study that shows it will shear off the um, protein, spike protein that's on the cell wall. But then where does that sheared off part goes? It goes into the bloodstream and maybe it's going to cause clotting. So if you're going to do beta-hydroxybutyrate, don't just do that because then you can end up with clotting disorders. Do the beta-hydroxybutyrate with the biotin, with the, uh, amber, uh, the arabinose and with the alpha-lipoic acid. Uh, I don't know yet if any of those get into the nucleus. So I'm not, if they don't, we're going to have to find some way to deal with that. Um, or maybe the answer is simply um, apoptosis and just have that cell, you know, hit the self-destruct button. But even so, we've got to, we're going to have to do all the spike proteins flowing all over the place. And I think that um, uh, those things that bond to uh, lysine and uh, arginine uh, residues uh, currently is my way of thinking. Wow, there was so much valuable information there and like you said here in Australia a lot of people are at that stage where they've already been um, injected they've already put something in themselves that you know uh, under duress they, they had to to keep their you know their job to see their family and things like that but it's so good that we have individuals like yourself um, that are looking into this and looking at the studies and you know you're saying some things which were some people were like what but you, the, the, it's there. The patent patents are there. The research is there, um, and and the question is, is where is it going to go? That's yeah. that that's the that's the scary thing, I think. Um, but I think, look, you've shared so much valuable information today. I am so thankful for you um, for researching all of this, for looking into this, for making sense of it all for us. Um, with all of your knowledge and experience. I do really appreciate your time. So we've learned so much about toxins. We've learned so much about what different types of toxins there are, what you can do. Um, and I'm also going to put down the website of a remedy link in the show notes that individuals are able to purchase any of the products that you've mentioned through today's podcast and are able to get even some um, videos there that you've got of protocols and so forth. So I really do 
appreciate your time and they're able to purchase the magnets that you've spoken about and so forth. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we close off to these individuals? I mean, look, you've given them some hope, you've given them some information and uh, it's for them to make a decision of uh, where they want to go from this and what they want to do. What I would say is a single injection is not a death sentence, um, but understand that exponentially with each one you take, it gets worse. Uh, there are a lot of people behind the scenes, Mahela, that are working on trying to figure out ways to fix this problem. Uh, so, you know, there is hope. And, you know, I, I, I have heard doctors say, oh, once someone's been vaccinated once, that's it, they're done for. I don't believe that. And I, I don't think it's true. And I don't think it's helpful to say that. Uh, I think that the body has a remarkable capacity for repairing and regenerating. And there's a lot of people out there who are working at uh, figuring out, doing research, trying to understand ways we can deal with this. People like yourself are spreading information. So, you know, if do the best you can to maintain the integrity of your genes and, you know, try to keep that stuff from getting inside of you. If it's already happened, you know, do your best to neutralize some of it, you know, pray for, pray for help, pray for guidance. And, you know, we will get through this as a species. There's going to be some, you know, some challenging years ahead, but, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to what's on the other side of this. I'm looking forward to a society that has recognized these, uh, the control freaks and psychopaths that are in positions of power for the unhealthy psyches that they have and re, you know, get to the point where we start learning how to uh, choose leaders that are better humans, that are kinder people, um, that we, you know, were science is actually looking not to make a dollar but but to make a difference you know there's a, there's a better you know it's going to be a difficult time for a few years but the world that will be on the other side of this will be a more educated more compassionate healthier world for all of us hundred percent. You've said that so well, so well. Thank you so much. And what better way than to close it off on, on, on your final words. I do appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Spencer. I do appreciate your time and hopefully we'll get you back on a natural podcast to talk about um, a few other things, including uh, being off the grid. Sounds great, Mahela. It was awesome. nice talking with you. Thank you for joining us at the natural podcast. And remember the missing link between failure and success is your health. Content and information provided here is opinion of Mahela Raguse and is for information purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. It is not intended to provide medical advice or take the place of medical advice or any current treatment you're undertaking. Consult your own medical professionals for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the Natural Health Podcast. It is advised that you consult your doctor or healthcare professional in relation to any health concerns you may be having. Mahela Raguse does not take responsibility for any health consequences which occur from a person listening, viewing, or reading this content. And in a Circumstances Sheldon Natural Podcast, Mahela Raguse, any guests or contributors to the Natural Podcast, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of Mahela Raguse be responsible for damages arising from the information provided on the Natural Podcast. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Please note if you're taking prescription, do not stop your medication or start a new protocol, including but not limited to supplements diet, lifestyle changes without consulting a doctor or healthcare professional. If you or any person has a medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider or seek
seek other professional medical advice. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something that you have read or heard on the Natural Podcast or in any linked materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. Neither Mahayla Raguz nor the publisher of this contact takes responsibility for the possible health consequences of any person or persons reading or listening or following the information in educational content.